Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, we want to return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, took a little break last week. We were still in Luke, but uh, took a break from our verse-by-verse study. We'll come back now to Luke chapter 8. begin today in verse 26. I'll read in a moment through verse 39. Now, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is on display throughout the book of Luke. It is particularly on display on these two chapters we've been studying uh, for the last few months. That is chapter 7 and 8. In chapter 7, we see Jesus' power over disease. Remember, there was a Gentile man, a centurion, a Roman soldier, who had a servant that he loved in his home. And he sent word to Jesus that he didn't even have to come to his home. If he would just say the word, he believed that his servant would be healed. And Jesus was amazed by that man's faith, and he did heal the servant. But Jesus is also powerful over death. We celebrated that, of course, at Resurrection Sunday last week. But uh, Jesus raised the dead in his day. Remember that young man whose mother was a widow in the village of Nain? Jesus saw his funeral procession, saw the heartbreak of his mother, and went up to the coffin and touched it. And the young man came back to life, and Jesus restored the relationship between he and his mother. Jesus is even more powerful than doubt. In chapter 7, John the Baptist had been thrown in jail. And because nothing had happened, or at least not with the speed that John wished it would, he sent representatives to Jesus to ask him the question, Are you the promised one, or should we look for another? John was disappointed with Jesus, and Jesus, of course, was gentle with John told his disciples to go back and tell them that the blind see, the dead are raised, and everything's in control. And it was. And in between those episodes of miracle power, Jesus taught with power through parables. There was the parable of the debtors. Do you remember the uh, wicked woman who came to Jesus who had been forgiven of her sins and she was so moved by that forgiveness that she gave Jesus that was most precious to her and poured that uh, perfume on him and wiped his feet with her hair. And many there were offended by this. They began to murmur and say, if Jesus had known what sort of woman this was, he wouldn't have allowed this. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what sort of woman this was. And he used that opportunity to teach the apostles through a, a, a parable that we know as the parable of the debtors. Jesus talked about two men who both owed money. One owed 500 denarii, which was a huge sum of money, and another only owned 50 denarii. Both were forgiven their debt. Jesus asked his disciples, which one do you think is going to be more grateful? It was obviously the one who had been forgiven the most. And he was referring to that woman and people like her who have great sins and are so happy because of their forgiveness of sins. But there were other displays of the Lord's power. We saw a couple of weeks ago his power over the weather, over storms, how they were in a little boat going across and Jesus was exhausted from his ministry. And he took a nap and while he was asleep a storm rose up and Jesus was seemingly going to sleep through it until his disciples woke him and said, Lord, don't you care? We're about to die. And Jesus spoke to the winds and waves and said, peace, be still. That's exactly what happened. 
And you'll notice that the disciples were more afraid of God in the boat than they were a storm that was about to kill them. We come today to another episode where Jesus' power is on display, this time His power over Satan. The title of the message today is, Jesus is more powerful than demons. That's taken from an episode here in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Let's read it. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, that is after the storm abated, which is opposite Galilee. And when he, had, when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And Jesus... Seeing this, cried out, and, and he fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. He was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit him to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house, and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his words. Now, before we jump into our text today, there's a couple of things I want to establish in our hearts and mind moving forward. As we think about this historical narrative that Luke writes down of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel, be reminded often that as Christians we believe not in fate, but in faith, and particularly the object of our faith, which is Christ Himself. We don't believe in serendipity, we believe in sovereignty, sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean by that is this meeting between Jesus and this demoniac was not an accident, any more than the episode we saw just a few verses earlier, this storm on the Sea of Galilee, was not an accident, but rather an opportunity for Jesus to show forth His power in every realm of existence. You see, Paul says in Philippians that because of Christ's obedience, God the Father has given Him a name which is above every name, and one day every knee will bow. And unless you think maybe that's only in a specific geographical region, maybe just around Israel, no. He says of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. When we talk about the attributes of God, and Christ is God in the flesh, we say that He is omnipotent, omnipotent. That is, in every area He is most powerful. That is, both the material world, the things we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, and that world that's just as real that we can't see, the spiritual realm. And that's my first point today. 
we need to be reminded of the reality of demons. There are two extremes existent in the evangelical church today as it relates to the doctrine of demons. One extreme is to say they don't exist anymore, perhaps never existed. And the other extreme is to say every time that we get a stomach ache, it's the demon of indigestion. People see demons behind every bush, and that's also a mistake. The truth is in the middle. That is, demons are real. There was a movement over 100 years ago in the theological world to take all of what they called the mythology out of the Bible. Because it was the age of reason. It's when scientific achievement was really gaining momentum. And it was embarrassing to a lot of the academics and theologians who shared campuses with scientists to have to say that we still believe in spirits. And so they tried to explain everything that the Bible puts forth as supernatural or spiritual in nature in strictly scientific terms. And so it led to interpretations of this passage such as, well, in those days they did not understand mental illness like we do today. And so this was not really demon possession, this was undiagnosed schizophrenia. Well, dear friends, I think the Lord Jesus who created all of us knows the difference, don't you? And so here we have real demons. Now, uh, this even infected our own Southern Baptist Convention. I can remember as, as a boy reading my Sunday school lesson. You remember when you had the envelopes where you had to check all the blanks? Read your Bible every day, brought an offering, attended Sunday school in church, and studied your Sunday school lesson. Well, I was reading my Sunday school lesson for the next Sunday, and I believe it was on this very text. And the commentator, who was Southern Baptist, said what I just told you, that this was a misunderstood, misdiagnosed mental illness. Friends, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus believed there were demons. He talked to them, and He exerted power over them, and He cast them out. Here in chapter 7, we're introduced to a wonderful woman known as Mary Magdalene. And when Luke described this woman, he says it was the same Mary Magdalene from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. This was not an isolated incident. Jesus was in the habit, wherever he went, of healing physical illness, teaching the gospel, and casting out demons. And so there is the reality of demons. Now what a sad situation this man was in. First of all, the scripture says that he hadn't worn clothing in a long time. And you can imagine he was dirty, he'd been exposed to the elements, didn't have a house. Scripture says he lived in the tombs. His life was in such decay that he felt more at home among the dead than he did the living. And when he would go into town, people were afraid of him because he was a maniac and they would chain him hand and foot, but he would break those chains and he'd run away again. And finally they just gave up on that and let him live apparently in the cemetery. Now the other Gospels say there was, there's two of these men, but in, in Luke's account he only refers to the one who Jesus was speaking to. And, and so here, here are guys that uh, their life was to the, at the very least in, in shambles. Now let's answer the question though, what is the history of demons? Where do they come from? Well the Bible says that they are fallen angels. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, just note that in your Bible and read it later. I'll read it to you now. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. And unless you wondered who the great dragon is in Revelation, he says, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Those are all synonyms of the same 
entity, the deceiver, Diablos, Satan, the accuser, Lucifer, it's the devil, who deceives the whole world, who has, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Because he rebelled against God, in fact the scripture says he wanted to be God, Satan and the demons were, were cast out. Isaiah 12, 12 says the same thing. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which does weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will, ex I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. So that's the history uh, of demons. And we're going to read conclusion of this message, the future of demons. But uh, they're real, they're created beings, they're fallen angels. And, and don't be mistaken, the Bible describes Satan as the God of this world. He has been given permission for a time in God's sovereignty. And so when you watch the news and you see governments of the world and philosophies of the world that are antithetical to the things of God, just know who's all behind that. That is Satan and he has demons. Now, there are some things, though, that we need to deny about demons that are common misconceptions and misunderstandings. We deny that demons are as powerful as God or even that Satan is as powerful as Jesus, right? We know that because he's a created being. You know, the, the popular culture portrays Satan as that uh, little man in a red suit with a pointy beard and horns and a bifurcated tail. That's not... The Satan of the Bible. Satan of the Bible was a, a beautiful angel. And he is a deceiver. But his fate is known. That's another denial. That, that we really don't know who's going to win out in the end. That's a very popular Eastern notion that says there's good and evil in the world. And they're battling it out for control. And we'll just all have to wait and see how it all ends. No, Satan is our foe. But he's a defeated foe. He's allowed by God a temporary hiatus before his ultimate judgment, but his fate is already sealed and is certain. And one other denial is the fear that many Christians have that a Christian can be possessed by a demon. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that. In fact, I think there's a verse in the Bible that, that excludes that possibility. And that verse says, 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible says, if you have not the Holy Spirit of God, you're none of His. And we Baptists take that to mean at the moment of conversion, when your sins are forgiven, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God will not share space with the devil, right? And so you don't have to fear, as a Christian, being uh, possessed by a demon. So now let's move on. Our second point is this. The activity or the work of demons. What do demons do? Well, First and foremost, they lie. They deceive. They are dishonest in various shades and degrees. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, to Christians, be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Satan is trying to destroy us, and the way that he does that or attempts to do that in the church is by spreading false doctrine. Scripture says, 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 
And so when you hear people teaching false doctrine, things that are obviously contrary to the Word of God, know again that its source ultimately is satanic. The Bible says of Satan that he is a liar and the father of lies. And so young people, if you want to be like the devil, you are never more like Satan than when you're telling a lie. Now if you read the Bible, you know that Satan doesn't often tell bold face lies. He takes a truth and he twists it and turns it a few degrees so that over time it's a far distance from what it was intended to be. We see that in the Garden of Eden, don't we? He approached Eve and said, has God really said, if you eat of this fruit you will surely die? He's trying to keep you down, Eve. He's trying to oppress you. He's misusing you. See what he does? He takes a little bit of truth and he poisons it. Our friend Justin Peters says of people that, that go to churches where there's a little bit of false doctrine being taught, they say, well, most of it's good. There's just a little bit of false doctrine. And so he'll take a, a beautiful, clean, pure glass of water, and then he'll take a medicine dropper and say, this is strychnine, rat poisoning. And they say, I'm just going to put one little drop in here. Who wants to drink it? And his point is well made, that Satan manipulates and twists the truth to make it something that is, is poisonous to Christians. He does that through, through lies and deception and false doctrine. And so that, that's what they do. And, and so here's this man and, and uh, demons have the ability, according to the scripture, to indwell people. And you know how that happens, we don't know. It, it, it seems obvious though that it's often connected with idol worship and false worship practices. We see this all over the world. And uh, in, in whatever way, this man is not only possessed by a demon, but many demons. In fact, Jesus asked, what is your name? And the man didn't say John Smith. The, le the, the demon spoke, the head demon apparently. He says, legion, for we are many. Now you know that the Roman army was divided into divisions. And the basic division of the Roman military was a legion which consisted of 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so if we take this literally, there might have been 6,000 demons in this man. We know there were at least 2,000 because when they begged Jesus to cast them into the pigs rather than assigning them to the abyss, the other gospel writers tell us that there were 2,000 pigs in that herd and all of them ran down the hill. And so this man was literally just infested with demons. And the Lord Jesus was more powerful than all of them. But um, now let's look at our, our next point, which is the submission of, of demons. Did you notice here that demons have really good doctrine? In a sense, they believe in God they recognize Jesus for who he, he claimed to be. In fact, uh, the New Testament says, you believe in God, you do well. That makes you equal with the demons. Because there are no demons who are atheists. <laughs> they know that God exists and, and they know who Jesus, his son is. In fact, look at what he says in verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out, that's the demons cried out, and fell before him. They submitted to his authority. Now you see this every time God is seen physically in, in the Bible. Do you remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6? What did he do? Went down on his face. Woe is me. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he saw the risen Savior on the road to Damascus went blind, went down in the dust. When those 
soldiers came out to arrest Jesus the night of his, uh, before his crucifixion, Jesus said, I am, and what happened? They all toppled over like a bunch of dominoes. This is what you do in the presence of one who is superior to you, who is God. And when they saw Jesus, they bowed down and began to beg of him. And they said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had been ministering for months in the presence of Pharisees who were ostensibly theologians, interpreters of the Bible, who should have recognized him instantly as the son of the most high God. And yet they willfully, stubbornly refused to believe it and said, he does what he does in the power of Beelzebub. And then Beelzebub, the demons see him and they recognize him as the son of the most high God. This is dripping with irony. And so what do they do? They begin to beg and say, what do we have to do with you? See, they knew their place. They even knew their future. And really what it says is, did you come to torment us before our time? They know that there's coming a day when they will be finally and ultimately judged. And so what do they do? Verse 32, uh, verse 31 rather. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss, which means the pit. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him, that means begged him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. Does that sound familiar? Remember in the Old Testament book of Job, when Satan came from roaming to and fro on the earth and pointed out God's servant Job and had to ask permission to bring calamity on Job's life. So don't ever have the idea that the devil's sitting on one shoulder and an angel sitting on the other shoulder and they're both trying to influence you and we'll just see who wins in the end. No, indeed. God is God even over demons. And our thesis today is that Jesus is more powerful than demons. They know their future. Now, what is their future? Well, we're running out of time quickly, but I want you to see this. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 20. Right to the end of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 20. And you'll remember that uh, the Apostle John was given a series of visions where he saw into heaven and into the future and how everything was going to turn out in the end. And this is what he saw, Revelation chapter 20, as it relates to Satan. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the, what? Pit, the abyss. That's the same word those demons used in Luke 8. And a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon. Who's that? That's Satan the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him to the pit and shut it and sealed it so that he no longer could deceive the nations. And so there's coming a time in the future where Satan is going to be chained so that he will no longer have influence over this world. And yet, for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, that's a temporary state of affairs. He calls it a, a thousand years. Now look at verse 7. Then when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now hear this. Here's the ultimate end of Satan. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. So that's the end of Satan. His fate is secure. He now is fighting a guerrilla-style war, even though he is a defeated foe. Now remember I said that there are two extremes as it relates to demonology. One is to blame every time you do something, the devil made me do it. A demon made me do it. And the other is to ignore Satan's existence altogether. Both are wrong-headed. The Bible indicates that there are three primary reasons why we sin. And theologians put those in these three categories. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now the devil we've talked about today, he and his demons. But the truth about the devil is he's not God. Would you agree? Since he's not God, he doesn't share the attributes of God. He is not omnipotent. He is submissive. And he is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. And so it's wrong for us to think every time we sin, well, that was the devil tempting me. It's very unlikely out of the six or seven billion people in the world that Satan picked you or me individually at that moment to tempt. Possible, but unlikely. It's more likely we're tempted by one of the other two, perhaps a combination of both. The world, which is the system, the philosophy, the way of thinking that is controlled by Satan and the demons. And it's even more likely that it's the third, your own flesh. See, we are born sinners, right? We don't have to be taught to sin. And we fight and, and battle our own flesh. What did Paul say in Romans? The things I want to do... I don't do the things I don't want to do. I do. I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay. But in whatever case, we still battle temptation. And Satan and his demons are about deceiving us and luring us into disbelieving God and into sins of both commission and, and omission. Now let's go back quickly to our text and finish this up. I should have taken two weeks for this, um, but it didn't. Now let's go back to verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, can you imagine you're sitting there and you've got 2,000 pigs? Obviously these are Gentiles because pigs to Jewish people were unclean and, and they wouldn't eat them or be around them. By the way, I didn't put this on my resume when I applied for this job, but I used to work on a pig farm <laughs> when I was a kid. And there were many days I wanted to cast those pigs into the lake. <laughs> but the Lord didn't, didn't see fit to do that. So that these herdsmen saw what had happened. They ran away and reported in the city and in the country. That is, it, it, it spread quickly. And everyone came out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet, clothed in his right mind. Everything that had been made wrong because the indwelling spirit was made right because of the presence of Jesus. See, to be naked in the ancient world was a shameful thing. Jesus made sure he had some clothes to wear. He wasn't running around foaming at the mouth. He was sitting quietly in his right mind for the first time probably in years. What a miracle work the Lord had, had done in his life. Verse 36, those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. Isn't that not only ironic, but tragic? 
Here's a man who had done the most powerful thing any of them could imagine. There's no way you could explain this man sitting there clothed in his right mind. They'd known him all of his life except something supernatural had happened. And rather than being attracted to a God like that, they're repelled by them. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they love their sin. And they knew if Jesus was around, they had to deal with their sin and they weren't willing to. That sound familiar? I heard a sermon of a missionary in the early part of the 20th century gave. He said when he first went over to Africa as a missionary, he didn't know it at the time, but he went as a humanist. He felt sorry for them living in poverty. He felt sorry that they didn't have the modern conveniences, and he was going to go over there and help these poor people who were innocent. You know what he found out, he said? He said he found when he got over there they weren't innocent at all. <laughs> he said they knew a whole lot more about God than he thought they did. And they hated Him. And they loved their sin. And friends, that is true not only of people in deepest, darkest Africa. That's, people, that's true of people right here in Keller, Texas. The Bible says light came in the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. See, what happened to that man that day is, is greater than having his mental capacities restored. What happened to that man that day is he got thoroughly and ultimately saved. How do we know that? We'll read on. Verse 38, But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him, that is Jesus, that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. What have we been saying throughout this study of Luke? What is the surest evidence of genuine conversion. It is obedience. The first thing this man wanted to do is tell other people about Jesus. But Jesus said, no, you can't go with me. You go back to your house and tell people what God has done for you. You see, this man had been isolated from his family, his community, and Jesus knew that uh, the greatest impact he could have is among those who knew him before he was saved. And he went back there and the Bible says he, he obeyed. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what things Jesus had done for him. Friends, we've talked a lot about evangelistic training here in the last few months. And it's great. And I'm all for it. I hope all of you go through it. But if you have had your sins forgiven by Jesus, you really have all the training you need. You just go tell people what he's done for you. And that's what this man did. And and we, we're not told what, what sort of influence he had, but I believe it must have been mighty. Can you imagine recognizing this man as that maniac that had terrorized the entire region for years, suddenly clothed and clean and in his right mind, and when you say, what happened to you? He says, glad you asked. <laughs> here's what Jesus did for me, and here's what he can do for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, we thank you for this man who was thoroughly cleansed. Cleansed from demon possession, but also cleansed from his sin. And you made him useful and usable in your kingdom. And Father, if you can use a man like that, you can use everyone in this room. And I pray you would. Father, if there's a lost person here today, would you call them to repentance and faith? If there's a saved person here today who's grown cold in their walk with you, Father, would you rekindle that fire within them through your word and through your spirit. 
Father, I would pray that if there's any decision that any needs to make here public, that you'd give the boldness to do that. And whatever good happens, we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.